10107 is that number. Tonight we're going to look at a character in the Old Testament, an Old Testament character study that I had not set out to study, that I was thinking about insignificant, significant people. Uh, and I was looking at this character, and I came across this guy as kind of backdoored into this particular gentleman. And his name is Ruel the Midianite. And based on the look in the audience, everyone is like, who in the world is Ruel the Midianite? Guess what? I would have fallen into the same category. So let me give you another name that the guy is known by. Raguel, or however you say that, in Numbers chapter 10 and verse 29. Nope. Anybody? Okay, how about if I give you another name he's known by? How about Jethro? And we're not talking about Jethro Tull, the musician. We're talking about Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law. And I came across this guy, and I was like, this guy is pretty interesting. Specifically for something. Remember how we keep saying in our Wednesday night class, and how many times I get up here, when you see a name in the Old Testament that ends in an E-L or has an E-L in it, right? It means something about God. That's short for Elohim. Well, guess what apparently Ru means? By the way, you see the name Reuben, right? So, Ruel means friend of God. You know how many times he is called Ruel? Our introduction to him. Go to Exodus, the second chapter. The only time that he is called Ruel is in Exodus, the second chapter, and verse, oh, uh, down, I had the verse there for a second. Thank you, verse 18. I'll draw a blank and I couldn't find it there. It came to their father, Ruel, and we would know several things about it. That's the only time that it is mentioned. Other times, like chapter 3 and verse 1 of the book of Exodus, you can see that, is that Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. So here's what I want us to think about tonight as we look into this guy whose one-time name, and we don't know him by that, is Friend of God. What I want us to notice very closely is the relationship between Ruel, Jethro, and Moses. See, we don't have a lot of family relationships that we can understand in the Bible. We don't see a ton, especially of father-in-law and son-in-law. There's just not a lot of that. In fact... There was a few years ago, I was a part of a series where we were supposed to be talking about godly fathers. And you might find that that's kind of difficult to find. Uh, Really, a lot of examples of godly fathers. Well, I think what we're going to find is that Ruel, Jethro, is an example of a godly father. And how even Moses himself looked up to him. So that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Now... I said Ruel the Midianite, right? Because he's not Ruel the Jew. So who are 
the Midianites. Let's talk about that to begin with. Who are the Midianites? Well, the Midianites are descendants from one of Abraham's sons named Midian by Keturah. And you'll remember Keturah was the wife that he took after Sarah died. Not the sons of promise, but yet they were still descendants of Abraham. We remember some of the other descendants of Abraham, but he was from Abraham. We also know that from Genesis chapter 25 and verse 6, and I want you to flip over there, that what he has is that when Abraham had these children and they grew up, he gave them gifts according to verse 5 and verse 6. That verse 6 of Genesis chapter 25, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So what we have Abraham doing with his sons that are not Isaac is, hey, you guys move to the east. And so if I put this map up here, we would see that Midian would be east of the Jordan River. It would be east on that side, even of the Sea of Aqaba, or however you pronounce that. And it was a relatively big territory. Uh, that, And we're going to see that come into play in a minute. But that is where they are from. They're on the east side, and they're sent there because Isaac lived in Canaan. That was where he was. The others, they were sent away to the east side. So the next mention that we have of the Midianites is in Genesis chapter 37. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 37 is that they were trade people. That they traded with Egypt in particular. And you remember who, what they were willing to trade with Egypt. Somebody by the name of Joseph. That in Genesis chapter 37 we have them being called the Ishmaelites. Uh, in one place, in verse 25, you would see that. But then if you went down to verse 28, this same group of people, when they get to Egypt, that are the ones actually selling to Potiphar, you would see there in verse 28 of Genesis 37, that the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and they lifted him out of the pit. And then in verse 36, when they actually get to Egypt that the Midianites sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar. So, does that sound like a good group of people to you? That they are trading people. They are slave trading people. It doesn't sound like a great group of people. They sound like people that are out there doing whatever they can to make a buck. And so we're almost up to the days of Moses. We don't hear anything else about the Midianites until Exodus chapter 2. And you remember Moses, he is in Egypt. He sees a Hebrew and an Egyptian fighting. And he kills the Egyptian. And the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. And they say, uh, Moses? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And what did he do? He fled. And where did he flee to? And that gets us to Exodus chapter 2 and all verse 14. 
in verse 15, Pharaoh heard it. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by the well. Midian is the place where Moses went to find refuge from Egypt. And he was there for 40 years. That's what we know about the Midianites leading kind of up to this point. We're going to learn maybe a little bit more about them, that maybe the Kenites come from specifically here, Ruel, Jethro. And you say the Kenites, who in the world are that? Well, that was about how I got into the story to begin with. I was looking into Deborah. Remember the story of Deborah? There was the king that ran away and he came to the friend's house. He said, come on in here. And the woman whose name was J.L., and I should have looked up what her name means because it ends in E-L, but I forgot to do that, welcomes her, welcomes him into the house. And he asks for water, and she gives him milk, and she puts the rug over him right. He falls asleep. He takes out the old tent stake, rams it right on through the temple, and boom, dead, and she gets all the glory for the victory in the battle. It seems as though she is a descendant of Ruel here through that. It seems as though that is the way it goes. And so that's how I kind of got back to him to begin with. So that was some, somewhat of the sermon that I was going to preach previously, but that's okay. Uh, because I found this guy. So there's our Midianites. Are we kind of okay with that? That they're not Israelites. They're from Abraham, kind of like the Ishmaelites. But they don't really have any good relationship with those directly descended from Abraham. In fact, they were selling those that came directly from him. But yet Moses is able to find refuge. So now here we go. Here's our introduction now to the priests of Midian. Pick up with me here in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15, the very last sentence there. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and they drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. I'm going to stop right there. We learn that Ruel is the priest of Midian. He had seven daughters. Now I want you to just stop and I want you to think for a second. What is our first inclination when we hear about somebody being a priest? We think about them being a priest and they were descended from Levi. They were a part of the Levitical priesthood. Well, has Mount Sinai come about yet? Have they even been freed from Egyptian slavery yet? No. This is someone in this land to the east who is worshiping God, who is offering sacrifices to God, who was a priest of God. Reminds you maybe of somebody else with the name El in their name. How about Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, right? God is my king. There's a priest. Now, we don't know that this guy is a priest of God. We, we don't know this, right? 
We just know that he is a priest of Midian. And what you have here is that he has seven daughters. Their name, his name is Ruel, right? A friend of God. Now, Moses comes on the scene and he saves his daughters. Apparently there were bullies at the well quite frequently. I want you to think about that. Fathers, mothers. Your kids get picked on. And do they usually tell you about it at school? They don't usually come and tell you about it. Sometimes you see something maybe going wrong with them. And you say, what's wrong? And they might tell you. They don't come and they don't tattle. I wonder if that's kind of what's been going on here. Is that these women, they are being stopped pretty much every day that these people are bullying them to feed their flocks first, to water their flocks first. But today, they're home soon. How'd you guys get home so soon? Well, this guy, this Egyptian, we don't even know his name. This Egyptian saved us from these people. Parents, what do you want to do? Like, who is this guy? He wanted to thank Moses. Look at in verse 20. He says to his daughters, he says, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Like, hold on now. The guy just saved you. And you just let him go just like that? Like, what are you thinking? Go get the guy. So, apparently they went to get him because verse 21, Moses was content to dwell with the man. And it seems as though it's a little more than just come and stay at his house for a little bit, right? Because the man gave him his daughter, Zipporah. I want you to think about that for a second. Does that sound kind of familiar to another father-in-law son story that we have. Remember Jacob? His wife was met by the well. And he went and he worked for Laban for seven years for Rachel. But what did he give her after the seven years? Leah. So what did he have to do? Had to work seven more years for Rachel. Well, apparently here, not the way, not the case with old Jethro. He gives Zipporah to him. And I wonder if Moses is working for him. We're clearly going to see, if you see in chapter 3, verse 1, what Moses is doing for him. Chapter 3, verse 1, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of what Jacob was doing in order to get his wife? He was keeping the flocks there. And so we have him known there in chapter 3, verse 1, as the father-in-law being... Jethro. Now, I want you to notice where he's at here in chapter 3, verse 1. He was in the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb. And Horeb is known as the mountain of God. And it is while he is there doing these things for his father-in-law that he is called to go and deliver Israel from Egypt, alright? Happens at the mountain of God. Now we're not going to deal with him being called by it, but I do want you to notice something very, very interesting to me. I want you to go to chapter 4. And I want you to notice verse 18. So remember chapter 3 and verse in chapter 4 is Moses agreeing to go to Egypt. 
Lord had to do a little convincing, but he goes, right? Aaron is going to go with him. Now notice verse 18 of chapter 4 of Exodus. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said, Go in peace. You say, Wes, that's probably not a lot, right? But what did Moses owe Jethro? Is he kind of a servant to him? Was Jacob indebted to Laban? They were indentured servants. They were servants. They belonged to them in this way. He goes to him and he says to him exactly what he was going to do. Let me go see if my brothers are still alive. And what could the father-in-law have said? Nope. You are going to stay with me. You're going to stay here. I don't care about your brothers. I don't care about those people. You stay here. That is not what happens with Jethro. Jethro says, go. We're good with that, right? That he brings him in, makes him a part of his family, and he is willing to let him go do what he thinks he needs to do. Right? Obviously, he's been called by God to do that. We're okay with that. All right, now here's what I want you to see next. So we got the rest of the book of Exodus, the next few chapters, are Moses in Egypt. But do you remember what happens on the way down to Egypt, who Moses took with him? Remember he took his wife Zipporah and their son, who had a special name, and the Lord was about to kill him, right? Kill Moses because he hadn't circumcised his son? Well, at some point, what we are going to see is that this priest in chapter 18, if you go forward to chapter 18 of the book of Exodus, we're going to see that once Israel is brought out of Egypt and they are all set free, that Jethro, verse 1, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro... Moses' father-in-law had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her home, along with her two sons. So notice what else Zipporah had done, not what Zipporah had done, but what Jethro had done. Jethro had housed Zipporah and their two sons, Moses and Zipporah's two sons, while Moses was in Egypt. Now, it says that Moses sent them back. We don't know when Moses sent them back. We don't know if it was when the plagues began. We don't know if it was on the way after he was about to kill him. The text doesn't tell us. But what the text tells us is that he took in his daughter and their two sons, their grandchildren. Now, would we all do that? If we had the ability to do that, would we do that? We'd all do that. What might you think about the person that has now gone away and you now have to take care of their family? Would we think very highly of the individual that we'd say, man, how dare you leave your wife and kids behind? Like These are your people and I'm now taking care of them. Was that the way we would think, maybe? Might we be like, man, you know what? It's military, it's a job, you got to do what you got to do. You go and you do that, I'll gladly take care of them. 
I'm not sure what the exact idea is. But he's willing to take them in, and he does. But upon the return, which is what we have here in chapter 18, we see a guy who is willing to take in somewhat of a stranger into his own home and include him in all these things. Now, if you go here in chapter 18, I want you to notice what happens when he comes back. Moses and all of Egypt is back. He hears about what the Lord has done. And he's been keeping the wife and the two sons of Moses. Now pick with me in verse 5. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. He doesn't say, hey, I'm keeping your kids. He says, I've heard that you're here. I'm coming with your wife and your two sons. If you took in your own grandchildren, would it be easy to give them up? If you took in your nieces and your nephews, would it be easy to give them up? If you took in foster children, would it be easy to give them up? Man, I think it would be very difficult, even though you know they're going back to mom and dad and all those things, they've become a part of it. And one of the very first things that when he hears that they have come back is here, they belong to you. They are your children. And so they go. Now I want you to notice this interaction between the two of them. Notice verse eight, verse 7 here. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. You say, Wes, I think you're reading too much into that. You ever have those awkward family relationships where you kind of just talk because you kind of have to? Like, we're family, so I see you, and I'm like, so how's it been? How's everything going for you? And you don't really care about what has happened in their life or what is happening in their life. That doesn't seem to be the case to me right here. It seems to me that when Moses sees his father-in-law, he's not just showing him respect. He is. But he bows down and he kisses him. This is a man that he has grown to love. And he sees him and they ask each other, how has it been going? Now I want you to think about your relationship with maybe your in-laws. Is it that genuine of how is everything going? Or do we keep that safe distance where we don't really give ourselves hope. Wouldn't we love if we're on the whichever side you want to be on? That we have that close relationship. That there is the ability to genuinely care for one another. You're not just my children's father or my wife's husband. You are someone that I legitimately love. 
And that seems to be this relationship that they have. And so I have to ask the question, practically speaking. So when I have my family, is that going to be the relationship that I have? Am I going to try my hardest to genuinely care about my father-in-law or my mother-in-law? Or am I going to keep the stereotype going of, you know, in-laws are going to be in-laws. You know what? They're going to meddle. They're going to do all this. They're going to do all that. And am I going to be a parent who is not super welcoming to the new daughter-in-law, the new son-in-law, that I'm going to be somewhat standoffish? It doesn't appear as though that is Jethro Ruel, the friend of God. It seems as though he genuinely loved his son-in-law. And wouldn't you if he saved your life? Saved your daughter's lives? He's now saved this whole group of people. Like, we're not dealing with just some random guy. We are dealing with someone of great importance in this. And so this love that he had for him. Now, if you went down now to verse 9, I want you to see kind of the, kind of the character of this guy as kind of I see it. If you look down in verse 8, Moses told him about everything that had happened about all the hardships in Egypt, about all the deliverance, all of that stuff. And so you get to verse 9. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Jehovah had done to Israel. Is that his people? Israel is not his people. Remember? He is a Midianite. He's not an Israelite. But yet he sees Jehovah doing this, and you might say, okay... His daughter is now a part of them. His son-in-law is one of them. But he sees what they did for that entire group of people down there, and he rejoiced over that, that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. In Jethro, verse 10, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of Egypt. He says, man, it is good that the Lord did this. The Lord is great. Because verse 11, Now I know that Jehovah is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. He says God is greater. Jehovah is greater than all other gods. And that brings up a question, right? Because he says, now I know. And so here are two questions that you have to think about. Is this... When Jethro is converted. Where Jethro now becomes a priest of God. He now understands who this is. Or is this a growth in faith? Where someone already believes that Jehovah is God of all gods. But now it's like, now you're sure. Now you're convinced of it. Now you know. And the answer to the question is, I do not know which one. I can see both ones happening. Because, think about it, even if we went back to Exodus 2, it doesn't even have to guarantee that he was a priest at the moment. Because think about how the Bible is recorded, right? It is recorded from history. So sometimes take Judas in the New Testament. Judas, the one who betrayed him. Right? The one who betrayed Jesus. We haven't read that part in the story yet, but yet we're already told that he is the betrayer. There's a possibility that that's the case here. I don't know which one is which. 
But what I tell you, what I do know about the guy, if this is his conversion point, we got a good dude dealing with our hands before he's ever converted. We are dealing with somebody who loves his family, someone who takes care of his family, and someone who just is good. That's a good person. But now he knows, and I don't know the answer to my question, but I do find this very interesting in verse 12. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. I want you to notice how that says. When the Israelites, when the law comes out and the Israelites bring a sacrifice, who did they bring the sacrifice to? They brought the sacrifice to the priest. Guess what we got right here? We have Midian, well not Midian, we have Jethro going to God with his sacrifice. And who's coming to join him? Aaron and all the leaders of the people. And so what I think we have is him giving a sacrifice to God. This may be the very first sacrifice he has given to God. Or this may be a sacrifice that he has given to God many a time. I don't know the answer to that question. But here's what we know. When he knows that Jehovah is the God of all gods, what does he do? He worships him right there on the spot. And so notice maybe how the rest of the people respected him as well. Think about who's coming now to have fellowship with him. It is Aaron and the elders of the people. We're not talking about just somebody that happens to be the father-in-law of another guy. Because when father-in-law comes in, do all the elders gather together and have dinner with us? No, we're dealing, I think, with somebody of some more importance than that, that all of the elders have come to have this meal. So they have this. He offers the sacrifices. They have this meal together. And so the next day, Moses goes to work. He observes Moses. And what he observed, Moses, is that from morning until evening, Moses sat down on the judgment seat, and the people came to him. And so he questions Moses. He asks Moses, and I want you to notice this, kind of how he does this. Go with me now to verse 14. So when Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? I want you to think about what he didn't do. He didn't say, Moses, you're crazy. You shouldn't have all these people standing around you from morning till noon. He said, Moses, whoa, why, why do you do it this way? Why are you doing this from morning till evening? I think he's given Moses an opportunity to talk to him, to reason with him. So notice what he says here. So Moses said to him, well, here's why. Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Like the people are coming to me. Like, what do you want me to do? They want to know what God says. And so I tell them. So 16. So when they have a dispute, 
They come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Notice what he's not doing. Moses isn't saying, I'm gathering the people so I can make laws for them to follow. He says, I am letting the people come to me because they want to know what God says, and so I tell them what God says. I tell them those laws, those statutes. So he listens to what he's got to say. But here's what we usually know Jethro for. The advice that he gives to Moses. And I want you to think about this advice that he gives to him. He says in verse 16, excuse me, verse 17. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, man, what you're doing isn't good. You ever, you ever sat down with someone that you love and like you see something going on in their life and you're concerned about their welfare, their well-being, if they keep going down the same path? Now, why, why are you doing can, can, you, can you explain that to me a little more? Like, why did you choose to do this, etc.? And sometimes it might have a really good reason, right? Other times there might be something. But what he's looking at is he says, man, what you're doing isn't good for you. It's not good what you're doing. Notice who it's going to affect. He says, verse 18, you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. For this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. In the part of the nation that they are, they're in its infancy. They are just a few months old at best. Like, if you keep this up over the next 40 plus years, dude, you are going to be run ragged. But notice who else is going to be affected that way. The people. Would you want to stand around all day long and wait on Moses? Especially over something so simple and something somewhat trivial. Like, you mean I gotta wait? Like, I don't even like waiting 30 minutes at the DMV to get my driver's license. Imagine if I had to wait eight hours to get approval to do the tiniest little thing in the world. Would you even go anymore? No, you'd eventually say, man, this is pointless. I'm just going to do it anyway and deal with all of that. Or you get frustrated like, man, we're going to deal with someone who will help us. So he advises him. But here's the part that I love the most about the advice that he gives him. He says to him in verse 19, now obey my voice. I'll give you my advice and God be with you. Like, let me tell you. What I think is a good idea. And if you do this, God will be with you in this. Like, follow me here. And so he says, you need to find the people. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You're not doing anything different. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. And you shall make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Like, you're not changing your job, Moses. But moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, a place in such men over Jesus, of thousands, of hundreds, tens, etc., fifties, tens. He doesn't just say, get you some help, Moses. He says, get you some godly help. You need help from godly people. 
wouldn't that be the advice that we should give our own family? Michael was kind of talking about that last Sunday morning, right? This getting help, this getting advice, because what happens, it doesn't matter what the task is, it gets too much, it gets too heavy over time if we do it alone. And what you have is sometimes fresh eyes seeing something, right? Midian literally, they're not Midian, I keep calling him Midian. Jethro literally just got there. Literally saw him do this yesterday. And he said, Moses, help me out. Now notice Moses' response. Now someone comes to me and says, you know what, i got a better way to do it than what you got. I say to him, yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. You get on out of here. Not most. But notice your text there in verse 25, or verse 24. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses had this level of respect that even this outsider who had never seen this done, he said, you know what, you're right about that. It's not just because you're my father. You're right. I do need the help. And so he went about that. And here's an interesting thing that I think we we find when we think about Moses' affection for his father-in-law. Yeah, he listened to his advice and he took it in and it benefited the people. I want you to notice something interesting about verse 27. So Moses let, my text says, Moses let his father-in-law depart. Some of you says, sent him away. And he went to his own country. I don't know which of those to take because there is no real word right there for that. But I'll tell you what I think I see here. Is someone that let his father-in-law go even though he'd rather him be around. And I know that because I want you to notice, remember how I said he was called this Raguel guy? I want you to go to Numbers chapter 10. And this is the passage we're going to close with right here. That Moses is dealing with Raguel, Ruel, Jethro's son. And they are about to go on their way into the land of Canaan. And in verse 28, Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We're setting out for a place of which Jehovah has said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you. For Jehovah has promised good to Israel. You see what he did right here? He wants his brother-in-law with him. You come with us. It will be fine for you. But his brother-in-law said, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my own kindred. And Moses said, please do not leave us. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness. And you will serve eyes for us. They know the land. He knows the land. We need you with us. And he says, if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord does, He'll do the same to you. So 33, so they set out from the mount of the Lord a three days journey. The text doesn't tell us explicitly if he went or not. It doesn't say that he left. It doesn't say that he went back home. It doesn't say that he went. It says, so they departed and went three days' journey. 
I tend to think that he wanted these people to be a part of them. And when I get to my family relationship, do I want my family to actually be a part of my family? Where they have become so ingrained that even the in-laws, the brother-in-laws, the sister-in-laws, they're not in-laws. You're my brother, you're my sister, you can help us, you can be a part of us, whatever good comes for us comes for you. You might say he's trying to evangelize them. I don't really know. But Moses truly cares for these people that he wanted his brother-in-law to come with him and all this. Again, I might be making too much out of this text. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. But what I think you see is two people that mutually respected one another in a situation where in this day and time, Respect is not given. Where there is more animosity than there is honor, respect, fellowship type of thing. I got no problem following after Ruel, it seems like. It seems like he had a pretty good family and house on his shoulder. Thought about becoming a Christian tonight, but maybe it's going to help me think about my family and joining a family how I want it to be and how it's going to be for one day. need the prayers of the congregation. Why don't you come now as we stand and as we sing?